Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Ready for this. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, which is New York Sports Talk, long suffering fan. Your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. We're going to be getting into some football this month. We're going to start out in training camp with the Giants. We'll be joined by Jerry Foley of the Giant Insider Newspaper and Podcast. We're going to talk all about the Giants as camps are underway around the NFL. About what it looks like in year one of the Brian Dable era there. Got some camp battles, some standouts, what to watch for. We're going to talk all that with Jerry in just a bit. Also, continue our coverage of the captain this week. Episodes three and four aired on Thursday. I'm going to be joined by Alan Austin. Not a Yankee fan, but a big baseball fan, a big documentary guy also. So we're going to break down these two episodes, what we like, what we didn't, what we can look forward to coming up in the future. If you want more stuff like this podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering Your Favorite Podcast platform for episodes there. Because feel free to leave feedback and star ratings. That'll make us make the show even better going forward. Again, leave those feedback, leave the star ratings. They mean a lot. Check out the YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Video version of these conversations with Alan and Jerry will be up on the YouTube channel. Again, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Without any further ado, we're going to get to our opening tip. Talk about a big, 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 big week here for the Mets. And it's going to be a very important one in the National League East. That's coming up right after this. Two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, opening tip time. It's a huge week for the Mets, and the Mets right now are playing very, very well. We talked about them last week on the podcast. In this prior Subway Series, they just picked up a big win against the Padres. They have not lost since that game. They sweep the Subway Series with the Yankees. They sweep the Marlins in Miami. They've won six in a row. We were recording prior to Monday night's game. Max Scherzer pitching against Washington, trying to pick up a seventh straight win. And this is a team that's starting to get itself back together here. The offense looks reinvigorated. They've brought in Daniel Vogelbach. They brought in Tyler Naquin to revamp the offense. They're still looking for a another bat as of post time. We will see if they have made a trade. They're also looking for bullpen help, but everything is going well. They're 27 games over 500 the first time since 2006. They finished that season 32 or 500. It's going to be a fun year for them. And it's an important week because the Atlanta Braves are also playing well. I mean, they did drop a series of the Phillies. They're all the nice pick up a game in the standings, but they did sweep the Diamondbacks over the weekend. Entering the week, the Mets are three up on the Braves, four up in the loss column here. And they have a huge five-game series at City Field this weekend coming up. And we'll take a look here. We got some early projected pitching matchups for this series here. And the Mets right now, they're in a position where they're going to have a situation where they like a lot of these here. Start on Thursday night. You're looking here. Tie against uh, Carlos Carrasco and Kyle Wright. Carrasco was red hot in July. He went 5-0 with a .9 ERA. If five stars have .9 ERA in them. Tywan Walker on Friday against Ian Anderson. Saturday, doubleheader day-night. 
Max Scherzer gets Max Freed in one game. Dave Pierce is the pitch of the second for the Mets. The Braves not decided on a starter yet. And then Sunday, fresh off his return from the IL on Tuesday, Jacob DeGrom pitching against Spencer Strider here. Those are five massive games in this division. And the Mets and Braves left 12 games left. Nine of them are coming here in the span of 15 days. You got these five at City Field coming up. Then you have another four in Atlanta about two and a half weeks later, about a week and a half later. Those nine games could help the side division here because August is a big month for the Mets. They have a lot of winning teams. They've got nine games with the Braves. They have seven with the Phillies. They're going to finish their season series with the Phillies here. They got the other half of the Subway Series going to the Bronx. They have the Dodgers coming in at the end of the month. There's a lot of good teams in the schedule here. The Mets right now, the division might get decided here by how the Mets perform this month. If the Mets can go, say, 20 and 10 with their 30 games here, they have a cakewalk down the stretch. There's a lot of Cubs, Pirates, Nationals, Marlins. There's a lot of bad baseball teams on that schedule. They're going to stack up the wins here. If they can take care of business against the Braves, and the Braves schedule is a little harder than the Mets down the stretch, they have an opportunity to really put this division away. And that is very important because the way the playoff structure works in the National League, I mean in baseball in general here, is that the top two seeds in each league get buys. And right now in the NL, that's going to be the Dodgers are going to be the one seed most likely. The Mets or the Braves will be the two. And the two seed gets the winner of the 3-6 matchup right now in the playoffs. And who might that be, you ask? The three is the Milwaukee Brewers in, in the Central, and they have not been great right now. The Brewers entering play this week. They are 57-45. This traded Josh Hader away for... Taylor Rogers, so they made themselves a little weaker to not have to pay here. They are the three seed. They're going to win, they're winning that division. And the sixth seed right now is either the Philadelphia Phillies or a game up on the St. Louis Cardinals. The Mets, if they win the division, would play one of those teams in the, in the division series. You lose that, you have to play that best of three wild card round, probably against the San Diego Padres, who are 57-46. They just got Josh Hader. They're still in the Juan Soto mix as of recording time. And they have played well against the Mets this year. They've beaten them four out of six times. Even with, say, DeGrom, Scherzer, and Chris Bassett starting three games. Do you want to play a best of three? No. Anybody can beat anybody two games. The Pirates beat the Dodgers and swept the Dodgers this year. The A's just swept the Astros. You want to stay the hell out of that series. And that's a huge deal because then whoever is in that thing also has to go deal with the Dodgers in the first round. You don't want that path. You want your path where you have a bye, you deal with this... uh, Brewers, either Phillies or Cardinals winner, and then deal with one of these teams, the Braves, the Padres, the Dodgers, and the NLCS. Huge week for both these teams. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see with series, especially this is the Braves' last trip to City Field this year because their series, they had a four-gamer in May. Well, we had a doubleheader in there because there's a two-gamer that got wiped out by the the late seat starts of the season. They put one game here, one game in, in this series. And then they had three trips to Atlanta. They did one last month, one, two, out of three. They got the four gamer here. They got a three gamer at the end of the season. So this year, this stadium should be electric. It will be a lot of fun to see what happens here with the Mets and the Braves over the next few weeks. And at least we decided here, Mets are in a real pennant race. The Yankees are kind of just, you know, on cruise control, trying to re- get the ship right for October. We'll see you at the end of a few weeks, but right now, this is a very Met-focused pennant race. It's going to be a lot of fun for us here. That's going to be a lot of fun. Up next, we're getting into some giant training camp talk with Jerry Foley right after this. 
Second down and five, fake to Penny. And down the sideline, it's caught for a touchdown! Grabbed by Evan Ingram! The tight end for a second consecutive game has caught one for six. All right, I am back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. Training camps are underway. We're going to do Spotlight the Giants this week. Joining me today, good friend of the podcast, one of the co-hosts of the Giant Insider podcast, also as the Giant Insider newspaper, Jerry Foley is here. Jerry, how are you? Good, Mike. How are you, man? Pretty good. I got to say, Giants are really a very interesting offseason. I mean, they had a lot of stuff to do. Joe Shane had a big mess to clean up left by the previous administration. What do you think of what they did in the offseason to get themselves ready for uh, 2022 and beyond? Yeah, I don't think it could have been better from the standpoint of what he did in free agency because he had no money, right? He brought in a very solid starter in Glowinski, brought in guys like uh, Jihad Ward, you know, some other players who kind of round out the uh, the roster, Feliciano. Um, so you really have like two starters there on the offensive line that he brought in with really no money to work with. Um, he had to cut James Bradbury due to salary cap issues. But the draft, I thought, was, you know, look, it's hard to grade draft now, but based on what he did, getting Thibodeau, um, Neal, and now it looks like Wandale Robinson's a player, Cordell Flott's having a good, a good camp. I think what they did in the offseason was very good. I mean, time will tell, but right now it looks like he made a, a lot of very solid moves. Yeah, for sure. And I think the, the more interesting aspect I think of the training camp for me is just seeing – what Brian Dable does in his first camp. I mean, this is the first time really in a while the Giants got probably one of the top, like, hotshot candidates on the board in Dable here. And what are you looking forward to seeing how Dable runs camp compared to what they've had in the Joe Judge, Pat Shermer era? Yeah, it's already more upbeat, right? Um, it, there's a lot more motion. Like, I, I just, I keep talking, we talked about on our podcast the other night, like, the feeling around the team right now is a little better. Now, it's going to, ultimately result in wins and losses but for the first time in years we're seeing motion uh you know the offense kind of brought into the 21st century which is a, a really nice treat um but Dable's keeping it a little looser than judge did judge was very serious and uh, he had his own style but Dable's playing you know he's playing rap songs from Kadarius tony as part of the music you know so he, he's he's doing some things that you know the players are liking but uh, you can just tell it's a, it's a, a more grown-up offense. I mean, Jason Garrett's offense, you know, is a nice guy, but Jason Garrett, it did not work here. And Jason Garrett's offense a lot, too often looked like four guys running out and turning around, which is completely unacceptable. This is this is a pro offense now. And, um, you know, look, also coupled with, with what Wink Martindale's doing on defense, it's going to be a very aggressive defense. There's going to be times where we love it and I think times where we hate it because He's going to leave guys hanging. He's going to leave the cornerbacks one-on-one and say, all right, win your battle. I'm sending the house. So uh, it's just a whole different field of the team right now from a coaching standpoint. Yeah, for sure. And obviously this is a huge year for Daniel Jones. Giants to, like, probably probably wisely declined the fifth-year opt in the offseason to try and see you know, what they can get out of this year. Brian Dable sh- should be able to help him a little bit. He did, did one of the Josh Allen Buffalo. I mean, John Mara, the owner, has said, you know what? We failed Daniel Jones. He had the rotating cast of coordinators, not enough talent around him. Like, what do you think we're looking at here for year four of Daniel Jones? Well, this is going to be it. I mean, if if he doesn't succeed this year, they're going to they're going to be drafting a quarterback next year. And and look, if he doesn't work out this year, there's a very good chance they're going to be picking very high again, uh, and then surrounding this new quarterback in the 2023 draft with a much better team than Jones had when he came in. So. 
Uh, you, know, like, you know, camp so far, it's only been a few days, but it's been up and down for him. There's times where he looks great, and then there's times where he doesn't. So we have to give him time. We think he can do it, but it is all going to come down to him. He's got some weapons now with, with Tony, a healthy Saquon, with Robinson coming in, with Galladay being healthy. So, you know, um, I, I don't want to predict, but it's going to come down to this year and how he performs, and that's really it. I mean, he's going to have to improve on the numbers that he's had over his first, uh, what is it, four, uh, three years. So, Yeah, for sure. And also another big year for uh, Saquon Barkley here. He's about injuries. He's not been the same since he won the Rookie of the Year, his first year in here. And, I mean, there were rumors the Giants try and move him. They obviously opted not to do that here. What do you think we're going to see out of Saquon? A bounce back year. I think he's going to have a very good year. He looks really healthy. He's very healthy. He looks very fast. Good. Uh, the, the line in front of him is going to be a lot better. Um, I'm not saying they're going to be a top 10 team in the league as far as uh, offensive lines go, but you know, just adding Neil Lemieux coming back, uh, bringing in a veteran like Lewinsky and, and Feliciano, like Thomas in his uh, third year. I mean, this is going to be a much improved offensive line, you would think. And if that's improved, then if Barkley's healthy, he's going to have a very good year. So I, I think you're going to see more of what you saw Barkley's rookie year this year. Yeah, that'd be a good sign for Giants fans. Also, you mentioned that offensive line here. I mean, it looks like as good as it's been in a while. I mean, Andrew Thomas improved his second year. They draft Evan Neal, play right tackle. They have the two free agent pickups here. Like, how important is this development of the line for the Giants here? I mean, it's something they've been trying to fix for years. Yeah, it's outrageous that it hasn't been fixed, right? I mean, it's, it seems like since 2012, really, this line has been in kind of shambles. Even in 2011, when they won the Super Bowl, the line did not play well. Um, so, look, I, we keep saying it like, oh, yeah, we think we have it now, but we, I really do. I think you have two bookends who can be there a very long time if they're healthy in Thomas and Neal. I think that the key to it was bringing in a guy like Lewinsky, who's a veteran, who's very good. He's going to bring some stability to right tackle, kind of the way Kevin Zeitler did, but you know, Kevin Zeitler was more of a salary cap issue than anything else. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, the whole offense is going to be it, – it's going to go based on how well they play. Uh, Jones has not had time for all of his faults in his first three years. Um, he has not had time. He's, he's gone through exactly what Eli Manning went through towards the tail end of his career. And Barkley's going to – you know, Barkley hasn't had the holes. I mean, he's been injured. But, you know, how many times have you seen – gets a handoff and there's a guy in the backfield already. So it's going to be extremely important for this line to be good. I think they will be much improved and I think it'll make the offense be much more productive than they've been over the last, you know, three to five years. Yeah. I mean, you look at the offense, you look at some of the names on the paper there. I mean, you have talent there. You have Saquon Barkley, you have good receivers, Kenny Dolliday, Kadarius, Tony, you mentioned Wondell Robinson, look good in camp here. I mean, they're considering Dayball's back and you would expect some significant improvement on that side of the ball. You would. Yeah, uh, especially with some weapons they've added um, and the, the line improving, they 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 really have to. Um, it, it, it's, it's almost like now or never. I mean, if this if we can't improve with a number seven overall tackle, uh, I, I, you know, a former number four and Andrew Thomas getting better, like what is it going to take to get this line better? So, I think they're on the right path. I think they will be. They're not going to be. I don't think they're going to be dominant this year, but I think they're going to be on their way to being you know, what we were used to seeing in, in the early 2000s with this team. Yeah, for sure. I think on defense, obviously, the big guy everybody's watching here is Kayvon Thibodeau. And the draft, I mean, there are a lot of people who were, I think were trying to find reasons not to take him, which I think made no sense. The Giants did a good job of sitting at five, getting him, and 
he's made a big deal how he's not scared of New York. He's got the attitude to play here. I think if the Giants are right on this one, I think they got a chance to have a real star here. Yeah, I mean, Thibodeau for two years was like the consensus number one pick coming out of college. The fact that he slipped is comical, I think. I think it's one of those things where everybody kind of talked themselves out of it. Had a bit of an ankle issue uh, in, in the 2021 season. Then all this other stuff started coming out about he doesn't care as much about football. I mean, these guys get paid differently now in college. There's, there's like deals now that they can make where they get paid money and good for them. So, you know, I, I don't know what happened there, whatever. Uh, I think everyone else screwed up there. He was most people's number one for a long time. And, you know, bringing him in is going to be great. It's going to and, and to pair him with Ojolari on the other side. I think the Giants are going to have something there on the edge that could be really exciting. Like where, where the offense has a ton of question marks. I think this defense is going to be a lot of fun to watch this year. Yeah, so you got that defense. We do have some change there. Obviously, some guys in the secondary have left. You bring in Kayvon Thibodeau. You bring in some other guys here. So what are you looking forward to with this giant defense? Uh, much more aggressive. Um, you know, McKinney is not going to be, you know, playing that, that deep safety like he was under uh, under um, uh, Patrick Graham. He's going to be up towards the line more. He's going to be moving all over the place. Right now he's wearing the green helmet, so he's communicating everything on defense. Uh, in in training camp, so a guy like that, like he's he's probably the next one that's ready to be a Pro Bowler. Right, he had a very good year last year with five picks. He's a playmaker, um, so you know he he's going to ascend and he's going to play a bigger role in this defense. You have the, the edge, like I said, you have Blake Martinez coming back. Uh, it should be a fun group to watch. The biggest question mark is going to be that second corner. Can Aaron Robinson hold it down? Um, and can he hold it down from Darnay Holmes? Who look, he's a slot corner, but having a very good camp right now. You have three interceptions so far, I think, in three practices. Uh, Dory Jackson is going to be the number one corner. So it's the aggressive nature of, of Wink Martindale coupled with um, some real playmaking ability uh, on this defense at, at safety and, and really at the on the edge. Yeah, absolutely here. And obviously we're in training camp, obviously early on. Everybody always keeps their eye on the reports in the media out there saying, oh, like, oh, who's standing out? Who's making noise? Like, who are some guys who early in camp have stood out in terms of making a potential impact for this team? Uh, Donnie Holmes is probably the number one guy who's really stood out uh, in practice. He's had three three interceptions. He had a, I believe he had a pick six today. Um, you know, he's going to be someone. Uh, and, and Wondell Robinson, those are really the two. I can't think of one person on offense and one on defense. It's, it's Donnie Holmes on defense. And then on offense, it's Wondell Robinson who – Look, everybody raised their eyebrows when he was taken in the second round because of his size, and it was like, who the hell is Wondell Robinson? But if you watched any college football, especially the SEC, you knew who he was. Um, I thought it was a little early to take him, but hey, you know, I've been wrong before. And so far in camp, he's having a very good camp. He, you know, he, and he's going to be an integral part. And, and look, Kadarius Tony, who last year had a very up and down, mostly down season, um, he, he looks kind of back to form where the way he played against Dallas where he had, I think 189 yards receiving. Um, I don't want to say he's uncoverable, but he's so elusive. It's very hard to cover him one-on-one. So the guy standing out right now, uh, Tony Robinson and, and Darnay Holmes, believe it or not on defense. Yeah, absolutely. Another interesting thing here, obviously also is every training camp is always, you look around it's like, okay, Here's our position battles, whether it's two guys, like rookies, veterans, battling to get starting spots here. Which positions are really up for grabs right now? It's a good question. Um, probably left guard, where it's either Lemieux or Azudu, the new kid, Josh Azudu. Um, 
corner, second corner. Aaron Robinson, like I said, trying to hold it down. And you, you know, I don't want to say the safety position because you got McKinney in love, but you know, they just brought in Andrew Adams. Um, you know, I think he was brought in more than special teams, brought in for depth at safety. I don't think Julian Love would be replaced, but that's a position you can look at as well. You know, another one is next to um, inside linebacker, next to Blake Martinez. You have Kay Crowder coming back. But uh, they're very high on this kid, Micah McFadden, who could push Crowder. So I would say the inside linebacker, corner, and probably left guard are the three most up for grabs right now. Yeah, I would say also one I'm probably watch is tight end too because I mean they they let Evan Engel. Yeah, go. that's a good one. Yeah, you know what? That's a good one. Good job by you. Yeah, Ballinger, they have high hopes for him. And you know when you bring in Ricky Seals Jones, you did not bring in the second coming of Antonio Gates. I mean, you know this is a position that can definitely be uh, taken uh, by by Ballinger. So good job by you. Yeah, absolutely. That is a very, that's a very good one. That's another one as well. They want Ballinger to be their you know, Kevin Ball slash uh, Jake Ballard type. You know, someone who can block and 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 uh, run the seam pass and and get open and you know, look, Evan Ingram had all the talent in the world, but he couldn't catch the ball. And, and Bellinger brings a different element. He brings more of that. You know, um, more you know, he's only a rookie, but he's going to be a more reliable target than um, Evan Ingram, who was exciting when he had the ball, but he just couldn't catch it. And you're seeing that happen with him now in Jacksonville. Yeah, I mean, Ricky Seals-Jones, too. I mean, like, he's not flashy, but he did perform well a couple of years when he had injuries and watching it at the tight end positions. So I feel like he's a guy who you could, you know, he'll be fine. I think, obviously, they're hoping that Bellinger just takes that job. Yeah, he's fine. He's a nice player, but, um, you know, uh, there's a reason why they took Bellinger. So, yeah, uh, look, I hope Ricky Seals-Jones comes in and gets a 1,000 yards. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, I don't see it either here. And the other thing is, Things you hear with Giants here. I feel like this camp, the general feel is great. It's sort of a lot of like what you do at the beginning of rebuild where you have like a lot of competition, a lot of eager young guys here. And like, I think it's interesting because you have that comparison. You look at the schedule they have early on where it's pretty manageable. So like if this camp goes well, you can see, you know, like maybe the Giants are making things interesting. Like in the first half of the season, they get off to a hot start. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I agree. Yeah, so, I mean, like, you look at some of the early games they're playing here. I mean, it's sort of like the inverse of the Jets schedule where the Jets have all the easy games late. They're all their hard games early on. And the Giants, I believe, their first in their first four games after, out of the gate after the Titan game here, they have Carolina in there. They have the Bears coming in. It starts with the Jaguars, Seahawks, Texans, and Lions. I mean, the Giants, like, I wouldn't be shocked if they're sitting around 500, right, around, their, around midseason. Yeah, and you know, look, week one, they got the Titans. Now, if they play them week 10 or 12, the Titans probably, you know, destroy them. But if you're going to get the Titans, you want to get them week one. And then you got Carolina. And then I think you have Dallas at home. Uh, so, like, it, it's not daunting, right, their schedule. And as you go through it, the NFC East is not scary. The Eagles, unfortunately, I think are the best team, but Jalen Hurts doesn't scare anybody yet. Um, yeah, I mean... Look, I, I think this team is going to be seven and nine, but it wouldn't surprise me if they snuck a couple more wins in, uh, and even you know eight and nine, or uh, I'm sorry, seven and ten, uh, and they finished you know eight and nine or nine and eight even. I mean, I thought that's very high expectations, but I see this as a seven and ten team uh, if Jones can play well, uh, and that's just because of um, you know, a lot of inexperience on the team and, and just the fact that you know they're not very deep. Right? Like the guys start getting injured, it's, and, and I think every team in the NFL has that, but I think this team in particular has an issue with depth so yeah i think if you get that kind of year that'd be very encouraging for the coaching staff because this is not the most talented giant team we see in recent memory but you see that 
if they're going seven and ten, eight and nine, you'd say I guess more of the credit the coaches are saying, oh, like they got a lot of what they had to get them better players. This team could be very good. Yeah, that's right. Good point. Absolutely, Jerry. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'll you follow you guys on social media and keep up with the Giant Insider newspaper and podcast. Yeah, man. So at Giant Insider on Twitter, and then the podcast is on pretty much all platforms iTunes, Spotify. Google Play, everywhere you can find a podcast, we're probably there, Giant Insider Podcast. And then the, we have the newsletter that is uh, bi-weekly during the season and monthly in the off-season, Giant Insider. So you can go to www.thegiantinsider.com. Yeah, Giant fans, this is great stuff. You should check it all out. Jerry, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. You got it, Mike. Thanks, man. The Two-Minute Drill. All right, two-minute drill time here. We're going to continue our coverage of the captain here on the podcast. Parts three and four of the uh, documentary dropped last week. Joining me today to break it all down, uh, one of my favorite baseball people, Alan Austin, is back with us. Alan, how are you? Mike, it's so good to be back. Thank you for having me once again. It's always a privilege. I am well, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. I have to admit, as not the biggest Derek Jeter fan, I have been watching from the baseball perspective, and these two episodes really hit, they think, the peaks of our, like, baseball childhoods. To be completely honest with you, I couldn't stand Jeter. I was anti-Yankee as a kid and as a young adult, and at this point, I can't help but say I, I obviously respect him and what he did for the game and the city. So I, too, have been glued to the screen during this documentary so far. Yeah, I certainly agree. I think this is pretty good here. And I want to start off here. Let's start with part three because there's a lot to get through today. I think we should start with the addition of Roger Clemens to the Yankees here. I remember when they needed to trade 99, such a big deal. I don't think that's in good. So I got to say Clemens also a good interview for this. Clemens was good, but uh, my wife said the way they're filming him, he looks like a private investigator. <laughs> like he, they have him in this super dark room. He's wearing the suit with a hat that no one knows what it is. He just looks like an old PI. I don't know, but yeah, it is good having him and having his perspective. But I, you know, I'm going to jump the gun here. I don't buy for a second that he thought the bat was the ball. And also, why would you throw the ball? It's a good question. I mean, the ball makes no sense because obviously you're throwing it, you'd be throwing it out of play. <laughs> None of what he said makes any sense, but he's sticking to it the same way he stuck to other stories throughout the years, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's certainly true. I did also appreciate that when I remember the story like when I was a kid, it was like how his first BP as a Yankee that Jeter and Nod watched over full catcher's gear and he actually performed, like played the joke and threw behind them and not just got, didn't get in solo. That was good for him. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not a Clemens guy either. I mean, shout out to his son who's on the Tigers now. For those who don't know, I'm a huge Tigers fan. But it's nice having him because when he did come to the Yankees, it was a huge deal. I remember it vividly. He was the rocket. He was electric. He's one of the all-time best pitchers. And for the Yankee dynasty to acquire him, huge deal. Yeah, for sure. And. I thought another interesting thing that came out of the part three, I think in the 99 season we'll stick with right now is the whole feud between Chad Curtis and Derek Jeter. Cause they had this whole brawl in Seattle where Jeter ends up talking to a rod during the brawl. And then Chad Curtis defends the way he talks to the media. Uh, coincidentally, the Chad Curtis got traded later on and after the 99 season. So what do you think about that? You know, it's funny. 
when Jeter left about how if I had that kind of pull, I would have had a long extension. But you and I both know if a star player of that caliber wants a player who's uh, essentially a fourth outfielder off the team, yeah, I'm pretty sure he can make sure that a deal gets done or at least would be like, I'm fine with it. You know what I mean? So I think Jeter's kind of underselling his importance there. But I also think, you know, they could have easily gone the realm of Chad Curtis is a bad person in real life. And they didn't, they kept it to what happened on the field and didn't really go into Chad Curtis's real life demons, which I thought was a good touch. Cause it just, it seemed like they took the high road in that regard while still explaining the situation when it happened. Yeah. Because also in terms of Chad Curtis does have real life demons. This is also, they're also not relevant to the story we're telling. Exactly. And I, I think they could have easily taken a cheap shot there to help paint him as a horrible person, but they kind of kept it to what was on the field. And I liked the way they went into it. Yeah. And I'm sure this is something that you talk about with Jeter having like underselling his influence on because obviously his whole thing is Jeter's agency is involved with it. This is basically the Jeter biography with his approval, all this. I'm sure there's some, some exit meeting in 1999. They said, Hey Derek, I feel Chad Curry. He's like, eh, not a fan. They said, you know, what? we don't need it. We can move on. Exactly. Like he, he, he probably didn't even need to say anything, yeah. you know, let's, let's look at it the way it was. And we almost, you know, that situation reminded me of the Mets last year with Lindor and McNeil. And, uh, I know there were rumblings and, and you would know this better than I being how locked into the Mets you are that people thought McNeil was going to get traded because of it. Yeah, I remember that too. And then this seems to fix that this season. I mean, this seems to be a lot more camaraderie in that clubhouse than there was a year ago. Which is great because I know, you know, I am a, I root for the Mets. I'm not a Met fan per se, but I do like them. I would say they're probably my second favorite team. And I like both guys. So I'm glad that, you know, who prevailed, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go ahead to the beginning of the Yankee Red Sox uh, portion of this, go round one Yankee Red Sox 99. We get the playoff series, Yankees steamroll them. I thought the best part of this section here was the whole, like, them sort of making fun of Nomar because Nomar just thought, oh, you know, like, we didn't really like these guys. They're like, oh, we should have won. Like, we should have won with a better team than Jeter immediately get called him out. I was like, dude, that's what losers say. I thought that was a fun, like, way for them to take a little shot at Nomar in this. I love that Jeter's not holding back. You know, he he almost has that competitiveness still, even through interviews, thinking about his past. And Nomar is definitely part of it. Although it does seem like they generally like Nomar, A-Rod and Jeter. I mean, Nomar was such a likable guy. And, you know, if if there's going to be a movie about him, I think Adrian Brody and him are spitting images of each other. So... But that's besides the point. I do like the Red Sox rivalry talk. The, the you know they showed the brawl with Zimmer and Pedro, which I remember vividly. And I'm glad they went into that stuff because for us living in the New York metropolitan area, the Yankee Red Sox rivalry of that time period is part of our baseball like history as fans. Like that is something we lived through. And you and I neither had a horse in the race, so to speak, but it was still captivating regardless. And I'm glad it's represented here. Yeah, certainly a lot of fun. There's more of the Yankee Red Sox stuff later on here. When I go to the 2000s, specifically, like, they kind of go through the first couple of months, which, I mean, the Yankees had their ups and downs. But I thought it was interesting. I remember this because this is something I was very in tune with at the time. like, in September of 2000, they were not good. I mean, they sort of faded down the stretch. They backed into the playoffs, basically. They clinched on a, on a loss. The or, the Orioles ended up beating them and winning the division. And it's just one of those things that you just sit there and you're like, boy, like, 
this is one of those things where the shows is just so hard to win over and over and over again. And you wonder maybe that they're kind of just mailing it in, just waiting to get to October. Yeah, that was that was cool. I I had not remembered that as as well as you had, but you know that's the thing about baseball: just get to the playoffs, and then anything can happen. You can find your, you can rejuvenate yourselves. But that run backing in, you could tell how much, like just the fact that they didn't party with the champagne because they felt like losers that day who didn't deserve it. Like that showed you what that mindset of that club was, and it's a lot of these little stories and tidbits that really get you in the mindset of what it was like to be a winner during that dynasty. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did get also some of the 2000 playoff run here as well. I thought the first a series, I thought the fun thing about that was sort of an Eric Chavez. They say at the time, it's like, Oh, you know, like their, their dynasty is dead. We're going to beat them. And then Jeter and a couple of the other guys, they said, Hey, this woke us up because it's, they sort of like tried to kick us while we were down. It got us a little fire going to get out of that series. Absolutely. That was a great touch. And I, and another guy I feel bad for Eric Chavez, you know, he, he's always been a good dude who everyone's liked. And then he's the one who looks in this documentary, like a kind of an instigator, but I also don't mind what Chavez did because you want to have confidence going against the best. So it was just a, you know, it was kind of a, oh shucks for Chavez, but if that's what it took to wake the Yankees up, then you obviously never want to do something like that. No. And I think, I mean, they kind of brush over the Seattle series. The Subway series, obviously, is a big deal. And I, you were, you're my age in the Subway series. Remember how crazy that was in this town when and these two teams are juking it out here? I do. I do. And I was heavily rooting for the Mets in that series. Yeah, well, you know who I was rooting for that series. And that would go my way. You were just rooting for a good matchup. I'm just kidding. I, I know who you were rooting for. Yeah, I remember that series. I remember the story about George sending the furniture to, to Shea Stadium because he wasn't happy with the Met furniture here. And this is probably, in my opinion, I think Derek Jeter's best World Series, this World Series, because, they, I mean, the Mets have the whole thing. We we didn't need to re- rehash what happened in Game 1 apart from the Timo thing. We get we see them lose Game 3, and then Jeter leading off Game 4 when he hits the home run does really change that entire series. One thing goes all the way back to the Yankees on that one pitch. Absolutely. Jeter was the star, you know, before that, but that was his, that was his world series, like you just said. And, you know, it's fun watching that because for some reason, all this footage wasn't in high def and it all looks like it's from 1972, but it's what we watched live and had no problem with at the time. So that that's fascinating to me. And the other fascinating thing is just Shea stadium. Like, as fun and nostalgic as it is watching that stuff, once City Field gets some real playoff juice going and gets some real history, obviously we have the 2015 season, but once it gets a couple more years of, you know, just monumental moments, it's such a more pristine and great place than Shea Stadium was. And I just cannot wait for you to have those met moments in City Field. Yeah, there might be some coming this year because that place is that place can rock when it really get when the crowd really gets fired up. I cannot. I hope. I said this to my friend the other day in jest. I hope we're not watching a documentary twenty years from now called Judgment Day, and we see Aaron Judge talking about how when the Mets and Yankees faced off in the twenty two Subway Series, no one was hotter than Edwin Diaz, and Judge took him deep. Yeah. Like I just see ESPN painting the picture with the trumpets and Diaz and, and judge talking about how he got the better of him. I hope that doesn't happen. 
Yeah, I hope not either, because I think the other memorable thing about this year is obviously, is I, don't, I thought it was funny how they mentioned the Benny Agbayani thing or how he said the Mets are going in five games. That, do you remember how that actually happened and where he actually made the prediction? I do not. He was actually on Reyes and Kathy Lee when they interviewed him. He said Mets in five on that show. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, to Reyes was a big Yankee. I remember Reyes' face. He was just like, what the hell? <laughs> That is so funny. You know, ben ba- Benny Agbayani was a classic 2000s Met player. Yep. I, I remember. Um, the Benny and the Mets parody of Benny and the Jets, never not good. Yeah, and I also didn't, I also was not a big fan when they were making fun of the Mets for having the Baja man on the field prior to game five doing the who let the dogs out. Yeah, well, that that almost seems like it was also an MLB decision. Like, it was on the World Series broadcast. It's not like the Mets can just pull strings like that. I thought it was a little bit of a cheap shot myself. Yeah, well, they like, well, Jeter likes to take cheap shots to the Mets. I mean, he basically says, like, we weren't worried. It was just the Mets. It's just Steinbrenner. Came I cannot wait for that gift to come back this October. You know, hopefully the Mets do good stuff, and people will just keep that receipt for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I did think they end the episode pretty well here with the more of the A-Rod Jeter stuff because they had the infamous Esquire interview where A-Rod does the interview with the reporter. He basically says, you know, Jeter's never had to lead. He can be the two hitter. He's on a team with a ton of talent. We don't have to worry about Jeter. We worry about O'Neill and Bernie. Whereas, like, I have to do all this stuff. And I thought this was a good spot. And I did take offense a bit to the reporter like basically being asked, like, you know, like, did you feel bad about breaking up a friendship with this thing? And he's like, hey, I have a job to do. It's not my fault they don't like each other. I I did not like that at all. I got to be honest with you. I thought that was a bad question for the reporter because it, it, it tried to romanticize Jeter and A-Rod's friendship being destroyed by the media when it seems like, you know, they were cordial friends at best always. Like, it just seems like a weird, cheap knockdown of media and what media does when we're literally watching media. So it felt like a catch 22 and I really did not like, what do you want that reporter to say there? I just didn't appreciate that at all. I thought it was a, a weird question in general. Yeah. I mean, this has been one of the running themes about the first four episodes is like, Oh, the media made a big deal out of this. Oh, the media made a big deal out of that. And you can tell this is the Jeter piece because Jeter is going to say, Oh, like, the media blew this up in a much bigger story than it actually was. And he's basically sending out his version of the story. So I give credit to the reporter basically saying, hey, it's my job. I give credit to A-Rod. I said, hey, I said those things. He wouldn't be doing his job if he didn't report what he, what he had. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I just did put a stamp on their relationship. I thought this was a okay episode. I thought they did some good stuff. I feel like of the four, I think it's probably the weakest of the four that we've seen so far. Part four, I would agree with that. I mean, I think, um, I think part three was the weakest, I think. Oh, part three. I, I would say part four was the weakest. Um, I also just think um, we need to start seeing... I feel like we've seen the same thing in a few episodes in a row now, which is the Dynasty stuff. Uh, and I know they have a lot to cover. I know they've been glossing over some moments, but Jeter diving into the stands was like... 
posters. Like everybody talked about that for years. It's synonymous with Cheater's career. And they covered it in five minutes when I really thought like it's the flip. They spent some time on the dive. They could have done a whole segment just on his greatest plays. And I know they wouldn't have been done sequentially, but we watched the last dance and that certainly wasn't sequential. So I think they could have pulled off some of his best on the field plays in a segment all its own. Yeah, I think for sure, for sure. I, I do have some of my issues with this thing because I think because you and I are not Yankee fans personally. I think in terms like this is definitely not be the last dance because the last dance was sort of a big cultural like phenomenon and it took a different time and place than it is now. I think this, in my opinion, I believe John DeSantis said on his podcast. I think it's correct. This is basically Yankee fan porn. <laughs> yeah. I, I get that. I get that. But you also want it to be good quality content that anybody can pick up and appreciate. And for the most part, I think they're achieving that. I just want to see a couple more of the, I, I maybe just, I know it's an eight, it's eight parts, right? Seven. And they have a lot of seven. They have a lot of ground to cover, but I just think there are some things like I really, this is going back to the other episodes, but like, for instance, they really milked the arbitration idea and how they were screwing over Jeter when literally that's something baseball fans are like aware of every year. Like, will the star get paid? They'll come to terms on a settlement. Okay. They actually went to arbitration, which is a little more rare, but I feel like they milked that for dramatic purposes when it really wasn't that strange of a concept or big of a deal. I don't think that's as big a deal to me. I feel like they're foreshadowing some of the contracts he has with them later in his career, which I think I'm fine with that. I just think, like, obviously, it's like we're kind of just, like, wet, like waiting in the dynasty stuff for so, so long. And I think, like, we had, like, I feel like apart from the A-Rod stuff, there hasn't been a ton of, like, dramatic conflict, which is hard to get because, obviously, they're for people that win basically three World Series in a row, four and five years, and go to four in a row. So it's not like there's many, like, struggles them to overcome here. Yeah, I I completely agree. Like, okay, they lost to the Diamondbacks. Okay, they, you know, that's one out of, you know, a bunch of years. And 97 they lost. I just just feel like we need to start learning. It's about Jeter, the captain of the Yankees. So we're learning about that. But, you know, Michael Jordan had, again, I know it's not the last dance, but I think what we want to see as fans are a little bit more of the Jeter dating stuff, the Jeter celebrity aspect. And I just, I don't know how much of that we're going to get or how much he's willing to talk about it. So until we start seeing something different, okay, episodes three and four came by, we need to start seeing a little bit different content. Yeah, that's something I credit to Last Dance for because Michael Jordan was very open with like, oh, I was gambling. Oh, I this is why I quit for baseball. This is why. This is My why father's I death. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like we're not get, I feel like getting a much more polished version of this with Derek G, where he's he has a narrative he wants to put out there and like this is he's open to some degree. He's not as open as Jordan was. Yeah, and I, I also don't I, you know, Michael Jordan's one of the most fascinating athletes to ever walk the face of the earth. Jeter was a really great player, a Hall of Famer, no doubt, who had really cool off the field stuff, but we were never really privy to it. Just rumors, speculation. I think we as the fans watching this, especially the average Joe who wasn't a Yankee fan, they want to get more of Jeter. And, you know, to the first episode, which I thought was probably the strongest so far, learning about his home life in Michigan, you know, coming up a you know, the son of an interracial marriage, that stuff was fascinating. Probably the strongest part of the series as a whole so far in my, in my opinion. 
Oh, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's, I mean, let's be real. Like, we're not going to get, like, a segment talking about the infamous, like, post story about, like, Derek Jeter giving gift bags to, like, women he swept. Like, we're never going to see this in this in this documentary. Well, apparently they do talk about the gift bags, and he denies it. And I'm looking forward to seeing that because, you know, if he's denying it and it was true, that would throw off the validity of the documentary in general. But if he's denying it and it's not true, then it's like, so where did that rumor come from? Like, what's going on? So I, I'm, I'm interested to see what they do with it. And uh, I, I hope it's coming up soon. Yeah, well, let's get the part four right now. I mean, they had to start out in 2001. They do the fallout from 9-11. And I mean, we've seen this a million different places. I know famously uh, the Nine Innings from Ground Zero covers a lot of this, this territory with this. There have been a bunch of documentaries about this. Did you think we got enough new stuff here? in terms of the Yankee perspective on September 11th, what happened afterwards? No, I, I, I thought it pretty much hit it spot on. You know, I'm still a mess when it comes to 9-11 footage, which, you know, every year that goes by, the footage seems grainier and older. But it's something that I, re, I, I know it's cliche, but I remember that day pretty well and the weeks to follow. And... You know, whether it was the Yankees coming back, the Mets wearing the FDNY caps, NYPD caps, Piazza home run against the Braves, or, you know, Rudy Giuliani on SNL saying, why start now when Lauren said, can we be funny? I remember that period very well. And I thought the documentary had some really good insight. Didn't really teach me anything new, but it was a nice time capsule situation. Yeah, I thought the best part of that segment was sort of when we were going through individual players talking about what was going on to things, like Corey Posada being in a hospital with for his kid's surgery and talking about the hospital beds that never got filled, and Tino basically saying, oh, I got to get out of here. It leaves the partners up walking around for a while. Stuff like that I thought was probably was the best stuff to come out of that area. 100%. I did not know about the Posada thing. The Tino thing was good perspective. I would agree with that. Yeah, and obviously we know the story of the playoffs. Two things I want to sort of get into here is, number one, the – I think they did a good job on the uh, Derek Jeter flip play in the A series because this is one obviously I think you would agree probably the most famous play he's made in his career and he does a good job breaking this down to like oh like I was the second cutoff man and he said the most important part of the play was just getting the thing the ball back to Masada and to this day I'll never understand why Jeremy Chiambi did not sly on that play because if he does he's safe. I thought they broke down that play really well and why Jeter needed to be there, even though he wasn't expected to be. I just thought like it really, really showed that on the field, his mind was always 10 steps ahead. Like I really appreciated that. And yeah, Giambi should have slid. I don't know what he was thinking. And it was just, it was just crazy. It was the craziest play. And as a, Yankee fan, Yankee, let's call it a hater at that age. That play drove me nuts. Like, of course he made that play. Of course the A's aren't going to get that run. Like, I remember that vividly and being so mad. Yeah, I remember as a kid, I was not a big fan of that, but I'm like, you know, watching it now, I'm like, that's just like incredibly brilliant. It's just like just having the foresight, you know, go there because usually, like, you know, there's like the cutoff man and the second base is there. It's like, you are not saying there's going to be a third cutoff man and have Jeter be there to make that play. Yeah, no, it was spectacular. And kudos to Derek. Again, all the Yankee haters stuff that Jeter, you know, is talking down was me as a fan, as a kid and as a young adult. I can't do anything but respect the guy now. And it was really just like spectacular on-field awareness and execution. 
Yeah. Obviously, they also talk about the 2001 World Series, which, I mean, if you've watched any of this stuff, whether it's 911, like 90s and Ground Zero, all that stuff, like a lot of that stuff is pretty much covered here again. But one thing I thought was interesting we didn't get to is back, it was in game seven here when we have the whole like uh, Mariano Rivera coming in and ends up blowing a save. I did not, I've never seen this before, like the whole overhead shot on the on the force at third to Scott Burroughs where he doesn't throw the ball across the diamond to double play. That I thought was new. And I was glad they put that in there. Me too, because I honestly didn't remember that. Like, that was something that I don't remember from the time. I might have been a little young. Well, you and I are about the same age, so we were only about 11 or 12, maybe. About seventh, so, seventh grade. Yeah, so I don't remember that vividly. Um, so I'm glad they show that because that could have changed everything. And I didn't, I didn't remember that. So quite fascinating for sure. Yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun. The one thing I feel like I was disappointed this episode in was, and I, I would have loved to hear Jay's take on this because that world series loss and leading up to it was like, everybody sort of knew going into that time. So see New York was like, Oh, this is the last run for this team, this dynasty team, because at that point Paul near retires, Tina leaves a free agent, Brosius is gone. They really kind of gloss over it. Like, oh, everybody left and here are all these new guys. And we don't even get Jesus. Right. That, you don't get Jesus' perspective on it. That's what that bothered me. Yeah, that bothered me too. He's, he's the captain, and you're not talking about the players that left his team. Uh, they did gloss over that, and it's just like, okay, all right, I guess I guess we're moving on. Yeah, because like for me, I'm like, that's something where like you've been part of this core for like basically since your rookie year, all these guys have been here, and then – Rich, all the they're all leaving. I mean, Bernie stays, Posada stays, but like a lot of the big guys are leaving. And now here comes Giambi, here comes a bunch of these other guys, and like you're not getting any reaction from Derek about oh what happened to these guys. And I mean, maybe I'm sure the question was asked, maybe it wasn't an interesting answer. They cut, they put on the cutting room floor, but I would have liked to have seen it. I I completely 100 uh, percent agree with you. Yeah, it was disappointing, and I will say one thing I did enjoy and. Again, shout out to friends of the podcast, Rick Sarone, for being in this part of the episode here. The backstory of the Jeter Steinbrenner Visa commercial here was fun because I, I did love that. I love that they went behind the scenes. They, they said that Steinbrenner's like, you know what? You have one take to get me doing the conga line with Jeter. And I thought it was fun where Jeter says, yeah, I was doing what I want. And I just told George, like, I'll put the work in. Don't worry about what I do off the field. It was great. That was one of my favorite parts as well. I love the Baxter there. And I remember those commercials. I know I sound like an old man by saying that, but I remember those commercials vividly and to see the backstory of it, which obviously I don't, I wouldn't remember even if I'd read it. I was not in tune with like the papers or the, the, the you know, if Twitter was a thing back in Jeter's day, I'm sure everyone at all times would know what was going on with Jeter and Steinbrenner, but I didn't back then. So to hear that now, great insight. Yeah, it was also fun that, like, we get basically him telling a story about how, like, he, one night you have to decide to go bring all the guys out of the town, like, brings Matsui out, Giambi out, all the guys, and the paper happens to see them there, and basically get a headline, oh, Derek's party again, and that's when Steinbrenner decides making the captain. I thought that was also a great timing. Yeah, so funny, and, you know, Steinbrenner himself could probably have a documentary, that's for sure. Yeah, I think ESPN did one back in the day in the original 30 for 30 run on George. Oh, interesting. I'd have to go back and look at that. Yeah, I'm sure it's in the back. I remember watching it a while ago. I think it was like 2008-ish maybe it came out. It was like right around when he died. I think is when they had it done. Yeah, that's, I'd have to go back. Yeah, I, I would definitely check that out now, knowing it exists. Yeah. 
Well, let's go ahead to round two of Yankees Red Sox here, the 2003 season. We get a lot of this playoff series stuff. I think most of it we sort of get, we get more dunking on Nomar again, talking about how, like, Nomar says, you know, like, we had no problem with these guys. Then a couple of the Yankees basically said, oh, we hated them. And, like, I thought, again, this this did a pretty good job reminding everybody that, like, back in this era, it was sort of the 2003 to 2006 era here, that, like, when Yankee Red Sox games happened, like, all of baseball sort of stopped and looked and see what was happening. Yeah, and this is, so, this is the series with Boone, right? That yeah. was in this episode. Yeah, this, this um, just another instance of us as young non-Yankee fans being so furious that, of course, Aaron Boone hit it off Tim Wakefield. Like, just like one of those moments that was so uh, aggravating. And now, you know, Boone, of course, is in, you know, the, the the manager's chair for the Yankees. It's funny how things come full circle, but to be honest with you, Aaron Boone's run as a Yankee is pretty much limited to that home run. And correct me if you think I'm wrong, but what a moment to have as your big Yankee moment to eventually be welcomed back as manager because of it. Yeah. Cause I remember that because he gets, because he, he has the home run. They're expecting to play third baseball here. They tore, they tears up his knee to pick up basketball game. That's when they, that leads to a rod. Right. So Boone's greatest contribution besides the home run was blowing his knee out, playing basketball, thus leading to the arrival of Alex Rodriguez. And I thought it was very interesting how they dove into the Boston aspect of it. Like just another way the Yankees beat the Red Sox, which makes, you know, what's coming in 04 even that much cooler. But like that moment of Red Sox were about to pull the trigger, blah, blah, blah. And of course the Yankees swoop in after Boone gets hurt. Now to the, you know, to the Red Sox credit, they tried. They tried their butts off to make that deal happen. Money was an issue and it just didn't work out. Yeah, we'll get back to A-Rod in a minute though. I want to point out one thing though. I feel like in the Yankee run here, that 2003 World Series experience often gets forgotten because they lost it after the big boom moment. Everybody sort of forgets about that one. But I thought it was another one that kind of glossed over sort of like what happened here with the loss. Because, I mean, they get a little bit of Jeter going, oh, you know, like, you could, like, sort of denying it. They weren't ready for that one. But, like, I thought it was an interesting explanation, sort of wondering, like, what happened? Like, was the emotion of that Red Sox series so high that, like, they took the Marlins for granted? And the Marlins, remember, at the time, were going, oh, you know, we had a great year, like, blah, blah, blah. We're happy to be here. And they end up winning the whole thing. Yeah, I, I found that to be like a little bit of what Jeter said about the Red Sox saying, blah, 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 that's what losers say. And then here they are saying we weren't prepared or whatever. And I was like, well, wouldn't that be what losers say too? So like it was a little bit of a, to me it was a little contradictory, but I'm sure not everyone took it that way. But that was a good World Series. Like that World Series had moments and they definitely, because they wanted the story to be the Red Sox, they kind of just press fast forward over the fact that the Yankees did not win everything after beating Boston. So it, it really was a head scratcher that they just kind of went, Oh, yep. And then they wound up losing anyway. Yeah. I feel like that's like one where they can kind of just sweep it under the rug because obviously they're going to have to talk about like in episode five, you can talk about the Red Sox collapse in 04 when they basically blow the three Oh lead. They, they can't ignore that one. This is kind of like, eh, we don't need this one. This is not as important to the story. Agreed. Yeah. And let's go back to A-Rod. You brought up the sort of the circumstance of it where they're trying to compete for year to have this deal in place. They could trade Manny to Texas for A-Rod. The money isn't where A-Rod wants to give money up to go to Boston. He even says, I think, I thought this is fascinating. He just says, like, in the long run, I'm better off I went to Boston because then we don't have all this other, like, drama going on here. You know, he does win a ring with New York eventually. 
Yeah, yeah. It would have been interesting to see him as a Red Sox. I guess Garcia Power would have been in Chicago by then, or would he have moved over? I would be interested. No, I don't remember the timeline of Garcia Para. But if you're going to set up Garcia Para as being one of these big shortstops, I think they should have spoken about what it would have meant for him if Arod went to Boston. And I know it's not that important to the cheater aspect of it, but it would have concluded a narrative, so to speak. Yeah, it definitely would have. And I do think they did a good job, sort of like diving into some of the awkwardness of this because eventually, like, when Jeter basically says, you know, like, I was asked to be at the A-Rod press conference, and you could tell from the body language back then he had no desire to be there. And that sort of leads to the whole conversation. That they had. And this is probably, I think, probably the highlight of the night in terms of stuff we didn't know, was that we have this rain delay in Chicago where Jeter and A-Rod are the last two guys in the dugout, and A-Rod, Jeter, this conversation where A-Rod's like, are we good? Jeter's like, I kind of. And then they start getting this debate about, like, are you okay, like not being the shortstop? A. I was like, look, if I wanted to be the shortstop, we go back to Texas. So I thought that was a very fascinating conversation to have revealed in there. I thought that was the best part of that episode as well. And there was something there that really, you know, we could break down psychology and everything. Jeter talks about how he was talking to his dad and came up with that conclusion of what's your ulterior motive. And when you think about the way they talk about Jeter's father, he's a very competitive, hard-nosed, no-nonsense guy. And it just shows you that Jeter, his relationship with his dad, is very much one of mentor-mentee. He loves his father, and that's just another instance of things he does with his dad playing out in real life, conversations they've had, mentality shaped. And I found that fascinating as someone who associates baseball with father-son and it's just this all-encompassing world for me, you know, personally. And I found that very fascinating that that was part of that scene because it was indeed a great scene. Yeah, I think it's definitely a lot of fun. I mean, A-Rod's like, certainly been like, showed off some of the insecurities throughout the uh, documentary, but I do feel he's owned up to like, his role in like all of these stories. I feel like it's a Rod's record. Like is very valuable to this thing. A Rod's great. A Rod, you know, at, at one point, a Rod said something like it was when they were talking about some story in the paper and a Rod said, that's not how it happened. I think it was talking about the stats versus winning. And he was trying to like brush it off as cool heads. And then Jeter was like, I don't care. who's better. I win. And it was definitely their two types of personalities. A-Rod's in a place in his career where he's kind of still making amends, kind of still self-deprecating on broadcast, still trying to make in with, you know, be nice to people so he's accepted in the baseball world, whereas Jeter, Jeter doesn't have to do any of that. So he can be ruthless, cold, and calculated, and people will respect it because he never did anything, quote-unquote, wrong to the game and the fans. So it's an interesting dynamic in that regard as well. Yeah, I think we ended up in an interesting place, too. Basically, we end with the Jeter dive into the stands against the Red Sox during the regular season. We sort of had the lingering shout out Nomar basically being detached from his teammates in that game, which he foreshadows him being traded a couple of weeks later. So I thought it was an interesting spot to leave off here. And because, you know, next week we have two more episodes coming here, but we're going to hit this 04 Red Sox collapse next week hard. So where else do you think we're going next week? How far do you think we go into the timeline? I think that Red Sox series will probably take up most of part five. If not all, it was such a huge deal. I think that's probably going to be that. And then I think part six, you got to start getting into the personal life stuff or else the fans are just going to 
like, what is it going to be one episode and seven to the concluded slate? Like, no, they, I think part five heavily features the Red Sox series and maybe the rest of his playing days. And then part six, will get into the personal stuff, which everybody's waiting for. That's just my guess. I think my guess is we're going to end next week with him winning in 09. That would be where I guess we, my guess is where we stop. Right. Well, that would go along with maybe we use part five to kind of finish off his playing. And then part seven could be the grand conclusion. Yeah, because it is. Getting a family and blah, blah, blah. Because it's interesting because, like, the framing device throughout this has sort of been his last game in Yankee Stadium. I mean, we've cut to that, like, at the beginning of every single episode here. So I wonder, are we stopping there? Or are we going to talk about him wanting to get into ownership and stuff like that? That I'm curious about. I think you got to get into it because it's 2022. That was eight years ago. And he's done so much since then. If they don't talk about it, it'll be like, okay, we get it. It was during his playing days. But you always want to do the where are they now. So I'm hoping they do touch on it. Well, I mean, they didn't really, and, and go back to the last days, really didn't really touch on Jordan going to the Wizards, for example. They sort of like just swept that under the rug. And they say, oh, like this is basically the end of the story. It's like the 98 season when he hits the last shot against the Bulls, against the Jazz. That's true. Maybe, maybe they won't. I just hope they do it a little bit. Absolutely. Especially now, we want to know, I know this was filmed and recorded over the last couple of years. I want to know what his mindset, what his future in baseball might look like, and I hope they kind of dig into it a little bit. Yeah, I hope they do too. But Alan, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I can do follow on social media. Keep all some of the stuff you're up to. Sure. So on Twitter, it's at Alan, A-L-L-E-N underscore Austin underscore. And that's probably the best place to find me right now. So give me a follow if you're listening. And one more thing about the documentary, really nice to have Gerald Williams represented. And like I said, they filmed this over the last couple of years. He sadly passed away earlier this year, but getting to see him on screen, being able to talk about Jeter is a really nice thing to see. And I'm glad it was able to be accomplished. Absolutely. Alan, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. All right, and that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Jerry Foley, for coming on, talking all about giant training camp, definitely a fun conversation. I also want to thank Alan Austin for coming on, talking about parts three and four of The Captain. Fun conversation there as well. If you want to work on stuff like this podcast, including my look at the Yankees' approach to the trade deadline and whether or not they're being aggr- aggressive enough for the opportunity they have, check out the blog over at justsendthesuffering.wordpress.com. Check out the Sky Guys podcast. You're a Star Wars fan. We did complete our Fall Order crossover with Nick D'Alessio. He came on our podcast. We did a recap of the game, the plot of Jedi Fallen Order. If you want that podcast, you got to check out the Sky Guys podcast feed. Again, check out all your favorite podcatchers for that podcast, the Sky Guys podcast. Also, follow me on Twitter, mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And that's going to do it for the Just on the Suffering podcast this week. Coming up next week here, we're going to get into the Jets side of things. Do a Jets training camp conversation. we do more on the captain and and more. Until we have a better week than Pirates fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.